Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. And that's the end of the good news. We're here today, but we've got all bad news, all bad martinis. And we'll start off with a prediction that we're not going to know what we need to know on election night. And Jim, this is becoming a very tedious <laughs> policy that we're seeing in a lot of different places. And the reason for that is because so many places are expecting mail-in ballots. So Politico out with the maddening headline yesterday, why we may not know who won the Senate on election day. And look, there's a lot of really close races, and it's possible that some of them could be really, really, really close that you need recounts. Inside, usually half of 1% uh, triggers an automatic recount in a lot of states. Uh, Sometimes it could be even closer than that. Sometimes people might not concede, uh, even though it's uh, a little bit more than that. The problem is, is that all these states that won't touch mail-in ballots until Election Day. And so what they say is that the root of many of the delays in 2020 is that laws that don't permit pre-processing mail ballots. Uh, Pre-processing allows election officials to prepare the ballots for tabulation ahead of Election Day, from removing them from envelopes to checking signatures, and in some cases, even loading them into ballot tabulation machines. Many states that were central to the 2020 election and have major contests in 2022 particularly Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, do not allow election officials to touch those ballots before Election Day, which significantly slows down the vote counting process. And Jim, this is infuriating for a number of reasons. First of all, we could be well ahead of the game. We know from Florida over previous election cycles that as soon as those polls closed, bam, early votes there. It's ready to go. And pretty early on on election night in a massive state, you've got a very good idea of who's going to win and by how much. But some of these states have learned absolutely nothing in two years. While it dragged out for days or even more than a week, the legislatures and the governors have apparently come to absolutely no agreement on speeding things up. Because as we know, the longer people wait, the more theories get out there that something's not right. Greg, if we had not had the experience of the past few years, I would be open to the argument of, well, if you count the early votes early, that means somebody in your elections area, uh, somebody in the the elections apparatus knows how many votes each candidate has before election day starts. So then you know, well, this person's got this many votes, this person's got that many votes. If you're the underdog, you need to go out and get 8,000 votes or something like that. And the idea that there'd be some sort of unfair advantage or the numbers could leak or that there could be some sort of bad effect of that. One, I noticed we haven't really had that. Two, you generally have a sense of who's gone voted by party registration, right? If, you know, if 8,000 registered vote Republicans in your jurisdiction have voted, well, that's probably about 8,000 votes for the Republican candidate. People sometimes, you know, cross, uh, uh, vote across party lines, but by and large, you have a general sense campaign, like a good campaign has a good sense of how many votes they've brought out through their early voting efforts so far. Uh, I think we would definitely have an advantage of this. The other point I think we should lay out here, it's possible we won't know who controls the Senate. Even if everything runs smoothly, even if nobody needs a recount, even if nobody uh, is within a half a percent or something like that, which, oh, by the way, I think it's I think it's more likely than not that with all these close races, you'll end up having at least one, maybe more. But as we all know from you know last year, under Georgia's rules, you have to win 50% to 
uh, win this, it outright. Otherwise, you go to a uh, runoff. And my guess is, first of all, if you look at the map of which races are open, I can get Republicans to 51 votes pretty easy. 52, you need the ball to bounce their way in a couple of ways I wouldn't really want to count on. 53 or higher, it means that there's been something, some big wave in the races that looked kind of shaky for Republicans, Pennsylvania, Nevada, places like that, that they've ended up falling in the Republican column. So I wouldn't count on that being the case, but stranger things have happened. It's very easy to come to one where you've got, uh, you know, 49 Republicans or maybe 50 Republicans and you need to have one more. And in the Georgia Senate race, you end up with both Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker below 50%. And the polling averages, they're both, are, in fact, right now in the Real Clear Politics average, as we speak, they are tied 46% to 46%. Now, it's conceivable um, one or the other has a fabulous last couple of months here. Um, I think that uh, you'll end up with a, you know, uh, it'll be close. I think it was, things were looking pretty good for Walker. Not great, but, you know, ahead by a couple of points here and there. Um, but I think it very well could come down to that. Oh, by the way, it's, for what it's worth, there is a libertarian candidate on the ballot named Chase Oliver. Uh, I believe in Georgia, you have the option of writing in candidates or people could leave it blank. So that question of do you reach 40, uh, do you reach 50%? Right now, I would guess that they probably don't. And it probably does go to a runoff. So uh, it may well be the control of the Senate comes down to Georgia and Georgia may not be resolved until a runoff, just like it did last time. That's certainly possible. But uh, to go back to the first point you were making, I would argue, and I'm guessing you would agree, that it's a lot safer to count the early vote early than to count all the votes and then go into <laughs> into the early vote. Uh, because if you're you know trying to figure out which one gives uh, a party the better idea of how many votes they need, I would say it's the latter. So uh, I'm not saying people are going to cheat, but it certainly leaves the idea when a generation ago, when we were up, and it's not just because Reagan crushed Mondale and Carter and that sort of thing. It was Senate races, on, House races all over the place. We knew who won on election night. Uh, you know, uh, 30, 40 years later, with uh, the te kind of technology we have now, it's ludicrous that uh, we're being told not to expect results on election night. Now, if they're razor thin and they have to go to recounts, I get that. But the idea that, uh, you know, we just need to start expecting that we're not going to know the big picture on election night, I'm not ready to accept that. And I don't think we should have to. No, Greg, I would agree with that. And I would point out the problems of an early count and somebody having some you know, behind the scenes sense of who's ahead so far. Those problems are theoretical. So far, we've not had leaks of these numbers in the states that are doing early counting. And the problems of not doing early counting are right here and tangible in the here and now. So I'd, my attitude is, let's try the early counting and see how it goes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you get a lot less, a lot less uh, people claiming something's fishy with the process. So anyway, not loving that headline at all. All right, on to our second bad martini now, Jim. And, you know, we have foreshadowed this a couple of times about how the Biden administration is going to stop selling huge quantities of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve right around Election Day, end of October to be specific, and that gas prices could be near $5 again by Christmas. I don't know exactly if that's going to be the case, but now we're finding out that it's not just Gas prices. CBS News. Americans are in store for an expensive winter when it comes to paying their heating and electric bills. The average household will pay about 17% more this winter to heat their property, reaching a 10-year high of about $1,200 per home, 
according to a forecast from the nonprofit National Energy Assistance Directors Association. Electric bills are also set to rise with the U.S. residential price of electricity expected to jump about 7.5% from 2021, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Those forecasts, CBS reports, follow a year of already elevated costs for homeowners and are likely to hit low- and middle-income consumers the hardest. So, Jim, the Biden administration keeps crowing about sliding gas prices, but we know that grocery prices are only getting more expensive. That hasn't abated yet. And now people are going to get punched in the face with higher energy costs. Might not be filling the tank right away, but it might be in addition to that if those other estimates are right. So uh, uh, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be willing to accept reality here. And then, and as a result of that, uh, people are going to be surprised by how ugly it gets this winter. Yeah. And I kind of been thinking about whether the Biden administration and incumbent Democrats would be helped by the end of the summer driving season. Uh, demand goes down. Gas prices, as we've seen, have reduced. Again, I don't think the, you know, anyone would say gas prices are cheap, but they're better than the $5 a gallon uh, price they had in mid-June. Right now, the national average is about $3.67. Again, I think most people say, oh, you know, it's still pretty pricey, but it's not as exorbitant and eye-bugging out of your skull level uh, that it was in there. But the, the flip side is that you head into the winter months, people start using both heating oil and uh, all kinds of other you know, natural gas, all kinds of other things to keep their houses warm. And that's when their electricity bills start going up higher. That's when their he heating energy bills start going higher. And I wonder if you'll start seeing them kicking in um, in November, you know, in October. Now people vote, we vote the first Tuesday in November, a bunch of people vote early. Maybe it will not have affected by then. Maybe Democrats are going to luck out that the election will be held in that span between the awful months of high gas prices in the summer driving season and the awful months of high home energy prices during the winter season. Uh, but I think either way, um, people, I don't think the memories of those high gas prices will have evaporated by the first Tuesday in November. And I don't think everyone, particularly in the northern climates, if you're, you know, Maine, Minnesota, uh, you know, your, your old home state of Michigan, place like it gets cold in October. It's, it's not all that warm. So my suspicion is uh, people will already be thinking about that at that point. Probably bad news for the incumbent party. Yeah, I, I would certainly say so. And of course, the CBS story says rising energy costs are linked to Russia's war in Ukraine. And with Russia threatening and possibly already cutting off natural gas supplies to certain countries in Europe. Uh, yeah, they're certainly in a pickle. And I realize there's a global impact on, on prices and so forth. But I can't help but wonder how much better position American consumers could be in if this administration had much better foresight instead of rushing headlong into the green agenda at the beginning of its administration. All right, on to our final bad martini now, Jim. And there are a number of uh, seats that the Democrats were hopeful that they could uh, be competitive in this year that are currently held by Republicans. Some of them very tight. We've talked about Pennsylvania a lot. Uh, Ohio uh, is certainly another one looking a little bit better for Republicans. And on and on it goes. Wisconsin also looking a little bit better for Republicans. But as you've tweeted out yesterday, Jim, one quixotic journey the Democrats seem to be on every six years is that this is the year they're going to take out Chuck Grassley in Iowa. Grassley just turned 89 years old. But as you pointed out yesterday, they always think this and then they get uh, run over by a corn combine. I don't remember exactly what... Uh, <laughs> What, what, what uh, verbiage you use there. But now there's more trouble on the horizon for the Democratic nominee running against Chuck Grassley. And it's the nature of the allegations that make this the bad martini, not the fact that this is 
likely to make Chuck Grassley's victory even bigger. Uh, This is from the Free Beacon. An Iowa Democratic Senate candidate's former campaign manager accused her boss of sexual assault, according to police files recently obtained by the Iowa Field Report. Mike Franken in March apparently grabbed and forcibly kissed Kim Strope Bogus or Bogus without her consent, a police incident report in April shows. The assailant's name is blacked out in the report, but the name of another Franken campaign manager and the candidate's past electoral history are mentioned. Strope Bogus said the candidate has had 1950s interactions with several other women. The allegations could imperil Franken as the former Navy admiral has made civility a cornerstone of his campaign. His platform also pledges to end sexual discrimination as well as workplace sexual harassment. Franken is also married with two children. The assault apparently occurred during a night of drinking in Des Moines. Boy, that last phrase, uh, Jim, kind of uh, like it's like athletes. Uh, the fight happened outside a strip club at four in the morning. Well, you know, sometimes you just need to not be in that situation. But uh, you know, obviously, there's going to be plenty of Franken jokes here because that's what sent Al packing uh, from the Minnesota uh, Senate seat. But uh, what do you make of this? The we're not getting much of a formal response from the Franken campaign, which makes you, of course, think that there's at least uh, some fire to this smoke. But what's your reaction here? First of all, Greg, heavy drinking in Des Moines sounds like this really cool semi Quentin Tarantino independent film from the mid '90s. Um, <laughs> About hipsters hanging out in the back of a bowling alley who get mixed up with hitmen or something like that. You know, um, yeah, nothing good happens from heavy drinking in Des Moines. Um, so the first thought of that, and I'm glad you brought up my observation about Chuck Grassley. Yes, it's a fun joke and the visual of him driving this corn harvester over his opponents. But um, I'd put that out there, and somebody who's in Iowa said, "Well, actually, I'm in Iowa, and I never seem to see Iowa Democrats believing that they can beat Chuck Grassley." I'm not so sure I buy into that, but I did go back and check and I realized it's possible some of my perception of this is driven by all too credulous reporters who are outside Iowa who buy into this idea that up, this is the year Chuck Grassley is vulnerable. And I went back and I could find that a couple last couple every six years, you could find at least one article in a place like Mother Jones saying, is this the year Chuck Grassley is in trouble, including six years ago, et cetera. Now, you and I talked about Chuck Grassley's age back when he announced he was running for re-election. He is up there a lot. Uh, and ordinarily, that would be a concern, except he keeps beating people in push-up contests. And he seems mentally sharp, and he seems still on his game. Um, if he you know, started having memory lapses or getting confused or something, then this would be a different conversation, but he's fine. You know, will this probably be his closer, you know, one of his closer races in his uh, history? Yeah, because that's not that high a bar to, cl- to clear. Um, you know, that, that obviously age might be a concern. There might be some folks doing it. But then it dawned on me, Greg, I haven't seen nearly as much of the, oh, Chuck Grassley's vulnerable this year, uh, buzz or talk. Democrats have... Other Senate races they're much more excited about, um, feeling good about, you know, Arizona, which maybe, by the way, maybe they shouldn't. looks like some polls for Masters are looking a little better. And a similar story in Pennsylvania. Um, Fetterman was up by a lot. And bit by bit, Oz is getting things at least to a respectable defeat um, in a state that I think a lot of Republicans expected they were going to have a decent shot in. So um, you don't hear that. And I think maybe that's an indicator even before this case of, you know, allegations of sexual harassment. Uh, it's less than ideal if your candidate is running on civility and women's rights to be accused of sexual harassment. And then the last thing is, if you're going to ha- be accused of sexual harassment, please don't have the last name Franken. 
Um, <laughs> and in fact, a couple people said, oh, when I saw the headline, I thought they meant Al. Um, so just a kind of an indicator, you know, uh, also by the, for what's worth, the polling in Iowa indicates that Iowa Republicans, at least as of midsummer, were going to be rollicking to this giant victory. So Iowa used to be, particularly in the Obama years, uh, a bit of a swing state. Um, I think it was a carrier Gore. One of them covered it one, uh, you know, carried it one of those cycles. I think it's turned to the right. I think it's a more red state than it used to be. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, having your candidate accused of sexual harassment, you know, a little less than six weeks before election day is going to do you all that much good if you're, you know, already a big underdog. Yeah. As I said in our email exchange this morning, Jim, if I may uh, paraphrase the former president of the United States, maybe we just need to stop letting people named Franken run for the Senate until we understand what's going on. And to shut the whole thing down. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> your name is Franken. You're out. Sorry. No good. And for our listeners, Jim's home is not being burglarized right now. It, ah. He's having a little bit of renovation done. So just, just so you're this aware, there's, totally no, there's different no emergency. One. You know, <laughs> this one does not use above ground nuclear weapons, but uh, it's still pretty loud. <laughs> anyway, good to end with a laugh on a day with three bad martinis, Jim. So hopefully we'll do better with our uh, fodder for tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And don't forget about Jim's novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. A lot of the media just doesn't cover the most important news of the day. I'm Byron York with The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how the Biden Justice Department is keeping secret a plan to change voting in the United States. Secret like they won't tell you what it is. Don't forget to download and subscribe to my daily No Chit Chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.